0: As a hypothetical, say you leave your house in a rush in the morning, you're late for work, you didn't brush your teeth, and your boss is not in a good mood on your average Tuesday. As you hastily run to the door and fumble with your keys to lock it, you forget that you've accidentally left the iron on, and while you're gone, that iron continues to heat the board until the board itself begins to smolder. And as you're at work being berated by your boss, that smoldering spreads to the walls to the floor, and to the rest of the house over time. Because let's say you live in Alabama, and your home is designed to be as airtight as possible to keep some of that disastrous humidity out, so very little oxygen gets into your house. So the fire can't erupt into a full blaze, but it doesn't exactly go out. The fire spreads slowly and doesn't turn into an inferno for this reason, but there is still just enough air to keep it spreading while burning low. After work, you decide to go out with your friends to keep your mind off the reaming you got from your boss when you were late, and you get home around 9 p.m., somewhat tipsy, but coherent enough to make it to your front door. By that time, 12 hours have passed since you accidentally left the iron on, and much of your home has superheated in an airtight space. Robbed of the oxygen needed to thrive, the fire just sits waiting for that huge gulp of air it would need to explode, and as you walk up your front steps to the door and turn the key, your entrance will give this smoldering fire exactly what it needs to erupt into a wave of hellfire. You crack open the door, and instantly, the air flooding into the house catches fire. The superheated gases inside the building ignite, and every window in your home is simultaneously shattered by the force of an explosion, And this is what's called a backdraft. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. The podcast is Tanner Talks About Stuff That Happened, and I am Tanner, and as always, I'm talking about some stuff that happened. Now... Anybody who's been listening to this podcast for a while is aware that it has been about two months, maybe a little bit more since I last updated, and there are a couple different reasons for this. First of all, I moved, and I've been settling to my, into my new house with my new roommates, and that's been quite an interesting experience. I love it. Don't get me wrong. I do love it. Uh, also, I've been part of a couple different theatrical productions over the summer, and those have taken up a lot more time than I thought they were going to, and that mixed with, you know, working a full-time job, it's a lot to handle, and so some passion projects that take up a lot of my time tend to take a back seat when things like this happen, and unfortunately this podcast was one of them, but because I've had two months to sit on all this material, I've done a lot of research, and this is going to be in my opinion, one of the best episodes I've ever put out, and also along with that is going to be one of the longest episodes I've ever put out, we're looking at probably at least an hour of content today. So I am very excited to dive into this, I learned a lot. Now World War One is one of the episodes uh, that I've been excited about simply because this has been a subject that I've been learning about for years just for fun is something that's been interesting to me for a long time, and I do credit that to the fact that I love the game Battlefield 1, and I'll be completely honest about that, that that's what really spurred my interest in in World War One in the first place, and um, so I'm excited about that. So before we get started, a few items of business, obviously as normally, this podcast is listener supported. Um, you can go to anchor.fm and find the podcast page on anchor.fm, and that will give you the link that you will need to Support the podcast financially. If you support the podcast financially, uh, that's a huge benefit to me, and I thank you so dearly for it. And also, if you enjoy the podcast, please head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and drop a five-star review and let me know that you like what you're hearing. And if you feel so inclined, leave me something nice to read also. Really, it does get us more people involved with the conversations about history, and that is very important to me. All right, so... If you haven't listened to the previous five episodes I've done in this series, I do recommend you do so. So you're up to date with all the intricacies of international politics leading up to what we're going to go over today. You know, huge wars like this don't just start overnight because of one thing. Obviously, there was a lot going on that led up to World War I rather than just the assassination of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand. But that is what eventually triggered it. And that's why I say that this is called a backdraft because Europe was smoldering for a lot of years leading up to this event and it just took one big gulp of air for that smoldering fire to turn into an inferno. So, um, I also re-released an episode that was released back in February of 2020 that covers the assassination of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand of Austria-Hungary just prior to the release of this episode. So if you want to hear me cover the stuff with, that I covered with only two episodes under my belt at the time, go check that out, because I'm not going to be covering the assassination in detail in this episode. So, if you want to put put this on pause, go check out the other episode. You are welcome to. I will be here when you get back, obviously. So, our last episode, not the assassination episode, part five. Our last episode ended on June 28th, 1914, as Serbian nationalist Gavrilo Princip huddles in a fruit stall in Sarajevo, Bosnia, and awaits the arrival of a convoy that carries the Archduke, whom he intends to assassinate. And as we know he would be successful in his attempt, and the assassination would send shockwaves throughout Europe. As we stated at the end of part 5, there was an immense amount of tension in Europe at this time, because in the last two decades, a number of political crises had nearly led to war, I mean, I mean several times, and a buildup of armaments due to an arms race had only increased that tension. So France, Britain, Italy, Austria-Hungary, Russia, Germany, Serbia, and the Ottoman Empire were all on high alert, ready to mobilize at a moment's notice if anyone were to hint that they were interested in, you know, forgive my language, but clobbering the shit out of each other. I mean, because Serbia had been throwing rotten fruit at Austria-Hungary for years, and it it was seeming more and more like a little kid standing up to its older brother, because in the end, Serbia would mobilize less than 10% the number of soldiers that Austria-Hungary would field in the war. But Europe was on edge watching all of this, because back in 1888, I mean, 30 years earlier, 25 years-ish, um... Otto von Bismarck himself had said one day the Great European War will come out of some damned foolish thing in the Balkans. I mean, ahead of his time by about 25 years, but he knew it was coming and the crazy thing is that he was right. The Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his wife are now dead at the hands of a Serb nationalist on Austro-Hungarian soil and Austria-Hungary wants retribution. Serbia immediately stated that it had no knowledge of the plot, and the Black Hand organization, who was the one who dispatched the assassins to kill the Archduke, had acted separately from the Serbian government, and the two were not in cahoots. But Austria-Hungary wasn't buying it. Its government saw the assassination as a challenge to the Austrian throne, and some advisors advocated for immediate war with Serbia as early as the first week of July. Germany, having built the most powerful, sophisticated, and well-equipped military in Europe, and possibly the world at the time, and a close ally to Austria, confirmed that it was ready for all-out war with Serbia at a moment's notice. Back in the Balkans, things were heating up. Russia had been working in back rooms, striking deals with Romania, Serbia, Greece, Bulgaria, and Montenegro in an effort to create a united front against Austria-Hungary, should it come to war. But following the Balkan Wars, Bulgaria wasn't exactly sold on the idea of being allied with the nations that had stomped it into the ground not even a year earlier in the Second Balkan War. Nevertheless, word reached Austria-Hungary that Russia was actively participating in Balkan politics, and this heightened the stakes of the already volatile situation. With the historic bitterness between Russia and Austria reaching a fever pitch, this was just another nail in the metaphorical coffin of war. With this revelation, the Austrian military began the logistical process of preparing for war. By the second week of July, two weeks after the assassination, the Austrian government had begun drafting an ultimatum intended to be sent to Serbia— constituting the ultimatum were a number of requests posed by Austria-Hungary in response to the assassination. Among these requests were ten major points of change in the Serbian government, as were as follows. First, suppress all publications which, quote, incite hatred and contempt of the Austro-Hungarian monarchy and are directed against its territorial integrity. Second, Dissolve the Serbian nationalist organization Narodna Adbrana, or the People's Defense, and all other such societies in Serbia, basically eliminating what the Austrian Austro-Hungarians deemed terrorist organizations against Austria, or Serbian nationalist organizations. Third, eliminate without delay from schoolbooks and public documents all propaganda against Austria-Hungary, which is a loose term and can be misconstrued or misinterpreted four remove from the serbian military and civil administration all officers and functionaries whose names the austro-hungarian government will provide basically austria was saying hey we're going to give you a list of people and you need to remove them from your government or we're going to declare war on you they didn't even have to really give a reason for it fifth except in serbia representatives of the austro-hungarian government for the suppression of subversive movements. Again, again, people from Austria-Hungary would be sent to Serbian government basically to control part of it. It would make Serbia somewhat of a puppet state, which obviously Serbia would not be happy about. But we're not done yet. Sixth, bring to trial all accessories to the Archduke's assassination and allow Austro-Hungarian delegates, or law enforcement officers, to take part in the investigations... This one was not very unreasonable. Obviously, people who had participated in the assassination should be prosecuted. Seventh, arrest Major Vojislav Tankosic and civil servant Milan Siganovic, who were named as participants in the assassination plot. Again, not unreasonable. If they were part of the plot, they should be arrested. Eight, cease the cooperation of the Serbian authorities in the traffic in arms and explosives across the frontier. Dismiss and punish the officials of Sabash and Loznica, frontier service, guilty of having assisted the perpetrators of the Sarajevo crime. Again, not totally unreasonable because this had led to an assassination of a noble. Ninth, provide, quote, explanations to the Austro-Hungarian government regarding Serbian officials who had expressed themselves in interviews in terms of hostility to the Austro-Hungarian government. This one's a little iffy because they're saying, you need to explain to us why these people don't like Austria-Hungary. And obviously, if these explanations don't aren't up to snuff for what Austria-Hungary wants, they could say it's an act of war because of this ultimatum. And, number 10, notify the Austro-Hungarian government without delay of the execution of measures compromised in the ultimatum. So, it's 10 things that Austria-Hungary said Serbia had to do. They didn't really say what they would do otherwise. They just said these have to be accomplished in a certain amount of time. And in addition, Serbia was to condemn all anti-Austro-Hungarian literature as dangerous propaganda and to actively suppress any publication or organization that voices malcontent toward Austria-Hungary. As you can imagine, these were steep terms to agree to, but if Serbia was to agree to the terms of the ultimatum within 48 hours of its announcement, peace would be restored." Again, like I said, no explicit threat was attached to the document, but instructions were given to personnel at at the Austrian embassy in Belgrade, Serbia. Should Serbia fail to respond to the ultimatum properly, properly, with air quotes, all Austrian nationals at the embassy were to pack their bags and return to Austria immediately. Now, I'm sure you can read between the lines with exactly what that meant. Deeply concerned by this development, Russia began preparations for war with Austria, Hungary, and Germany to defend their Balkan friends. Russia also reached out to France in an attempt to influence their position concerning a possible conflict, but France was way ahead of Russia. With bitterness rooted all the way back in the Franco-Prussian War, exacerbated by colonial rivalry with the, and the two Moroccan crises, France was itching to throw a punch at Germany, and when Germany made it known that it would back Austria-Hungary in a war with Russia and Serbia, France added its poker chips to the pot. Practically, by the time Russian diplomats entered Paris, France was already all-in, And across the English Channel, Britain spent the first three weeks after the assassination waiting to see how things panned out. They kind of just stood back and were like, alright, you guys handle this. And they were ready to jump in if things were to get really nasty, but they weren't totally involved yet. The Austro-Hungarian ultimatum was pending a response, because almost a month had passed since the assassination, and British diplomats entered, entered the stage and offered to mediate a summit between Serbian, Russian, German, and Austrian diplomats. This was an attempt to stop a general war in Europe, and British diplomats were optimistic, seeing that the previous three European crises in the last, you know, ten years had been resolved before they had gone to complete all-out war, so it was only reasonable that this one would be resolved before it came to blows, right? But the embers of international malcontent were heating up. Barely a day after British attempts to defuse the situation, Serbian, Austrian, and Russian armies began to mobilize, and the deadline for a response to the Austro-Hungarian ultimatum came and went. Serbia refused to acquiesce to every point in the ultimatum, and it was time for Austria-Hungary's move. The next day... Serbian and Austrian armies began heading for the mutual border, and it was at this point that the gravity of the situation finally dawned on Kaiser Wilhelm, and he balked, suggesting to his advisors that there was no need for war. He even sent a telegram to Tsar Nicholas II of Russia, ironically his first cousin, detailing his lack of desire for a conflict between their two nations. Tsar Nicholas II responded in kind, also expressing that he didn't want needless bloodshed either. The letters were even signed Willie and Nicky, respectively. It was true. They did not want this war, but they were prepared to fight it if needed. This directly debunks the notion that the war was strictly a familial affair, a claim that less informed people make tend to make when generalizing the conflict. These telegrams make it obvious that these leaders did not want to fight each other. But the following day, Britain sent a telegram to Germany stating that if the Germans continued to side with Austria after the outrageous demands of the ultimatum, even into a European war, Britain would have no choice but to side with Russia and France. The same day, Winston Churchill, then the first lord of the British admiralty, recalled the British fleet from the North Sea and the English Channel to prepare the ships for war. Wilhelm, still nervous about what was going to happen didn't back down, though he spent a significant amount of time considering it. As night fell over Europe on July 27th, one day to a month since the death of Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his wife Sophie at the hands of a Serbian nationalist, the decision was made by Austria-Hungary. Serbia deserved to pay for its hand in the deaths of Austrian royalty. There was no choice but war, and so... On 11 a.m. on July 28, 1914, Austria-Hungary declared that a state of war now existed between their nation and Serbia. 24 hours later, the first shots of the Great War were fired by Austria-Hungary as they shelled the Serbian capital of Belgrade, just miles from the border. Shocked that this was actually happening, Russia mobilized its military on July 28th, moving on the Austro-Hungarian border in an attempt to draw some Austrian forces away from Serbia. It was a daunting task, given the sheer size of the nation, and full mobilization would not be reached until July 30th. In Germany, this sent Kaiser Wilhelm into full-blown panic. He reached out to Austria-Hungary and begged them to call off the attack, but things were now set in motion that could not be undone. Britain and France also sent telegrams to Germany and Austria, urging them to call off the war, but with little to no response. On the 1st of August, Kaiser Wilhelm accepted that Europe was about to go to war, and he mobilized his military... In a dramatic reversal, he publicly blamed Russia, France, and Britain for conspiring to entrap the Triple Alliance in a war that they could not win and began moving his troops toward Russia in the east and France in the west. The same day, German troops invaded and occupied the tiny country of Luxembourg. Two days later, Germany declared war on France, Russia, ...and Belgium, after Belgium refused to allow German troops safe passage through the country en route to France. The next day, Britain and France declared war on Germany. Britain's reasoning being that Germany was in violation of international law by not respecting Belgium's neutrality. Two days later, Austria-Hungary formally declared war on Russia. And through this, Italy was curiously silent... In a single week, the entire continent of Europe had descended into the greatest war the world had ever seen, and as the first salvos fell in six different countries and six armies hurtled toward one another, the entire population of the continent braced for impact. At the beginning of August 1914, over 20 million soldiers were moving on three different fronts. In the Balkans, Serbian and Montenegrin soldiers were preparing for an Austro-Hungarian assault. In the East, Russia was assembling its massive forces for an all-out assault on Germany and Austria-Hungary. In the West, French, German, British, and Belgian soldiers were assembling for a series of battles that would go down in history as the most bloody in the entire conflict. In the first month of the war, another million would enlist across the continent, fueled by nationalistic fervor. But how did the continent get that many men to sign up for a war of such a scale? Let's look at it this way. Remember, we're looking at a conflict with roots stretching back arguably to the Napoleonic Wars. Napoleon took the Rhineland from Germany. Germany took it back. France turned its attention to Crimea, where Russia fought the Ottomans, then Italy fought Austria, then Germany fought France again, and Russia and Austria didn't like each other, then Britain and Germany competed, then the Balkans went nuts, then Germany and France and Britain almost went to war twice, then Austria and Serbia almost went to war twice, and all in all, that makes for a whole collective of countries whose sons, fathers, grandfathers, and great-grandfathers have a bone to pick with each other. And in August of 1914, it was going to happen. On the 5th of August, 1914, barely a week after the initial declaration of hostilities, the German army invaded Belgium, and the Belgian army began the heroic defense of Liege. A week later, Serbian and Austrian troops met on the field of battle on the Serbian border with explosive results. A week following, the massive Russian army launched joint attacks against Austria, Hungary, and Germany. Britain moved its fleet out of the harbor and blockaded the German ports in the north. And across the globe, other developments were taking place in the colonial holdings of each country as many shared borders. By the end of August, New Zealand, a part of the British Commonwealth, had occupied German Samoa... Japan joined the Allies and seized a number of German colonies in Micronesia and China, and in Africa, French and British troops invaded the German colonies of Togo and Cameroon, while German troops invaded British South Africa. This was no longer a European conflict. This was a global war. And though it was suffering in its colonies, Germany scored a series of quick victories in Europe. Despite its initial successful invasion of Galicia, a geographic region in East Austria and Germany, Russia had suffered a series of crushing losses that had driven it back by the end of September, causing its huge army to take a defensive position rather than an attacking one. In the West, Germany had taken 95% of Belgian territory by the end of August, and had nearly established a foothold in France, where orderly battle plans had devolved into all-out slugfests between British, French, and German troops, as advances into the region stagnated and German hopes for a quick victory began to fade. In Serbia, battle raged for two months in August and September t- between Serbian forces and the large reserves of the Austro-Hungarian Empire before the Austrian advance was stalled at the Battle of Drina and the Austrians were forced to establish defensive positions as Serbia counterattacked. For the two months following, Serbia swung back at Austria-Hungary, and by December, Serbian troops had actually pushed Austrian troops out of Serbia completely and recaptured the capital of Belgrade, humiliating the Austrians and raising the morale of the Serbian army exponentially. By mid-September, French and British troops had halted the German invasion of France and counter-attacked, pushing the Germans miles back from their furthest extent, which had driven the French to defend territory less than 50 miles from the outskirts of Paris. The Germans fortified their positions, as did the French. And here is where we begin to see the first real picture of the battle lines that remain static nearly throughout the entire war, thanks to a relatively new industrialized type of strategy called trench warfare. (coughs) Time for our first definition of the day. Trench warfare is a type of land warfare using occupied fighting lines largely compromising military trenches, in which troops are well protected from the enemy's small arms fire and are substantially sheltered from artillery. Though trench warfare was first seen during the American Civil War in the 1860s, the extensive use of trenches dug during World War I is the most well-remembered and well-documented use of these trenches. During the opening clashes of the war, all armies realized that advances in killing machines had outpaced advances in mobility machines, and defenders now always held the advantage, and on the open fields of France, the only protection was down. So they dug. By the end of the war, the Western Front stretched more than 400 miles from north to south, and two, three, four, or more lines of trenches covered nearly every inch of it, complete with full barracks, dugouts, communication lines, bunkers, ammunition depots, machine gun nests, and hospitals. In German trenches, living quarters could be found almost 50 feet below the surface. (laughs) After the trenches were dug and the Western Front stabilized, German forces launched an audacious attack, and these fortifications were tested. From November to December 1914, Germans, Brits, and French had it out across northern France, and the efficacy of the trenches was tested. It ended in a bloody stalemate, with both sides gaining no more than maybe a few miles of territory. 150,000 soldiers were dead in a month. It was a harrowing prelude to the next four years of war. In the east, the Russians had rallied and launched a second major two-pronged invasion against Germany and Austria, this one much more successful than the last. By the end of 1914, the Germans and Austrians had suffered significant defeats at the hands of the Russians, and the Eastern Front began to stabilize as Europe rang in the new year under the storm clouds of war. 1915 brought significant developments to the war. Itching to reclaim its lost national prestige, the Ottoman Empire signed a secret treaty with Germany days after the outbreak of the war, promising to join the conflict when it had the means to do so. Bulgaria, still bitter from its losses during the Balkan Wars, also signed a secret treaty with the Ottomans, promising to jump into the fray if they would do the same. In November of 1914, Russia declared war on the Ottoman Empire, and by the first week of 1915, British and Russian armies were already on Ottoman soil, the British in the Dardanelles and the Russians in the Caucasus. Tremendous clashes followed, as the infamous Gallipoli campaign was fought by the British, Australians, and New Zealanders, and the Russians continued their advance through the Caucasus mountains in the east. Here, we get a pretty fascinating side story that develops in the Ottoman Empire. For a decade before the war, the Ottomans were feeling the heat of a number of ethnic groups within their empire who were becoming more and more interested in the ideas of independence. There were a number of Greeks on the west coast of what is now Turkey who were interested in seceding and joining Greece, a group of Assyrians who wanted an independent Assyria, a group of Kurds who wanted an independent Kurdistan, and a very large group of Armenians who wanted an ethnic Armenia. With how large the Ottoman Empire was, there were no real ethnic Ottomans, but Muslim Turks were holding most positions of power at the outbreak of the war. Upset about their lack of representation, many of these ethnic groups began fighting for independence, the most famous of these being the Armenians. A new constitutional government had been established in the Ottoman Empire in 1908, and one of their main goals was to turkify the the empire eradicating any non-turkish culture and establishing a unified turkish culture the armenians were upset about this and when they voiced their discontent they were violently suppressed by the new government because most armenians lived in the caucasus so when the russians came sweeping through thousands of armenian volunteers rushed to join the cause bolstering the russian invading army and creating a serious problem for the ottoman defenders Other ethnic groups had been persecuted, such as ethnic Greeks and Assyrians living in the borders of the empire, and many people from these groups flocked to also join the Russians in the Caucasus. In one particular dramatic event, 30,000 armed Armenians fought for three weeks against a much larger force of Ottoman troops at the city of Van. And as they had begun to hear reports of atrocities being committed against Armenians by Ottomans in a series of massacres that would come to be remembered as the Armenian Genocide, after three weeks of vicious fighting, a Russian army came to relieve the Armenians and push the Ottomans back, though it was less of a favor to the Armenians than it was a serendipitous turn of events. The Russians were simply pursuing victory, and Van was along the way. As the Russians drove the Ottomans further south, the city of Van declared independence and established an Armenian government, but as the Russians began suffering defeats later in the year, they retreated back toward the Caucasus and 250,000 Armenian refugees followed them into Russia rather than be massacred. And this created a problem for the Russian government because there was suddenly this Armenian refugee crisis and they were dealing with some issues on the home front, which we'll get into in a little bit. But the Greek population in the Ottoman Empire was faring far worse. In 1913, the new Ottoman government had basically told the Greeks to either move to Greece or face annihilation. As early as June of 1914, Greeks were being exterminated in numerous towns and cities in western Anatolia. When Kaiser Wilhelm heard about this shortly after the war started, he noted that Greece had not immediately jumped in to help Serbia fight Austria and was remaining neutral. The Ottoman Empire had joined the Central Powers, but if these atrocities were to continue, it was possible that Greece would join the Allies and attack the Ottomans, which would be a nasty blow to the Central Powers, already fighting a war on five fronts in Europe and Eurasia alone. Kaiser Wilhelm sent a number of telegrams to the Ottomans, begging them to stop the persecutions, but to no avail. Tensions between Greece and the Ottomans grew. Toward the end of 1915, the Ottomans faced another problem when the British launched a a successful attack in Palestine as well as Mesopotamia. As the British moved further into Ottoman territory, a number of Arab tribes disenfranchised by the new Turk-centered government decided to join the British and launch an uprising against the Ottoman government. This uprising reached its height in 1916, fueled by British archaeologist, writer, soldier, and diplomat T.E. Lawrence, better remembered as Lawrence of Arabia. And between this uprising, the Russian invasion from the north, the British invasions at Gallipoli and Mesopotamia, a failed attack on the Suez Canal in Egypt, and the ongoing extermination of the Greeks, Assyrians, and Armenians, the Ottomans had their hands full by the end of 1915. But back on mainland Europe, Germany began launching more and more audacious and creative attacks to weaken Britain, as it noticed that the frontline attacks were becoming more and more costly with less and less payoff. In January of 19, a German Zeppelin crossed the English Channel and began dropping bombs on London. Not a month later, German submarines blockaded English ports and enacted a policy of unrestricted submarine warfare against all British and French ships, whether military or civilian. (laughs) What is unrestricted submarine warfare? This is kind of a buzzword when you talk about World War I. So unrestricted submarine warfare is a type of naval warfare in which submarines sink vessels such as freighters and tankers without warning, as opposed to attacking while abiding by a traditionally held set of rules called prize rules. And prize rules call for warships to search merchantmen and place crews in, quote, "a place of safety for which lifeboats do not qualify except under particular circumstances, before sinking them unless the ship shows, quote, persistent refusal to stop or active resistance to visit or search. To follow the rules, a submarine must surface, putting itself in danger of attack. Unrestricted submarine warfare threw these rules to the side in favor of all-out war against any vessel sailing through the Atlantic. This prompts outcry from nations like Italy and the United States, who had yet to enter the war on either side. As stated previously, in February of 1915, the British Empire began its first large-scale invasion on Ottoman soil. In the largest amphibious landing in history up to that point, the British and French coordinated an attack on the Dardanelles, a series of small waterways separating the Mediterranean from the Sea of Marmara which led to the Black Sea, and this became known as the Gallipoli Campaign. If you remember from part two of this series, these waterways were pivotal to any war effort against the Ottomans, and the Allies were seeking to exploit that. Despite a few hiccups initially, the invasion seemed to go well for a month or so, before stiff Ottoman resistance hindered the Allied advance. The British had considered the Ottomans to be an inferior fighting force and had counted on tactical blunders to work in their favor, but unfortunately for the Allies, the Ottomans had quickly adapted to the fighting style of the 20th century, and an attack on the home front had ignited nationalistic fervor within the Ottoman ranks. The Gallipoli campaign settled into a vicious stalemate costing tens of thousands of lives, but neither side would elect to throw in the towel for the better part of a year. Back on the Eastern Front, in April of 1915, Germany and Austria finally got their bearings straight and launched a joint offensive against Russia, with devastating results. Russia's big gains in 1914 had come at a cost, and the logistical aspects of the Russian army were not prepared to be extended to the position they were in at the beginning of 1915. Russian railways were few and far between, Russian rifles were faulty and ammunition was scarce, and food was hard to come by in the frozen Polish territory. When German troops overwhelmed the first line of Russian soldiers, it was tipping the first domino that would lead to a massive overall retreat. In only two months, the Germans and Austrians had driven the Russians from Galicia and Poland altogether, in an event known to the Russians as the Great Retreat. Hundreds of thousands of soldiers were dead, and as a result, the already unstable political situation in Russia further deteriorated. In May of 1915, an event took place that heightened the stakes of the already devastating conflict. As I mentioned just a minute ago, the German Empire had enacted a policy that supported the practice of unrestricted submarine warfare, which made Italy and the United States, both of whom had yet to enter the war, very uneasy. News headlines spread like wildfire through both countries condemning the German use of the tactic, and the citizens of both were viewing Germany as the bad guy. Then, on May 7th, 1915... The German submarine U-20 fired upon a passenger liner called the Lusitania, carrying 1,959 passengers from New York City to Liverpool, and the Lusitania sank with more than half of its passengers perishing in the attack. Among the dead were over 100 American citizens and almost 100 children, including 31 infants. International news headlines emblazoned the event as a horrific and deliberate attack on the civilian populations of the world, including members of a neutral country, and public opinion in the United States was solidified against the German Empire. It was enough justification for Italy to make their first move in the war. If you remember, for the last several decades, Italy had been in an alliance with Germany and Austria-Hungary as a guarantee for assistance in a potential colonial dispute with France. It was more of a defensive alliance. There was no guarantee from Italy that it would join a war if Austria-Hungary or Germany was the aggressor. And Germany and Austria-Hungary were okay with that. And actually, up to this point, they were trying to keep Italy neutral in the war. Fortunately for Italy and France, colonial fervor had lessened in the last year, as Europe had its hands full with another pretty significant series of events, so Italy no longer needed a defender. The Italian people were deeply displeased with the historical grievances they held with Austria, specifically Austria violating the treaty that would have awarded Dalmatia and other eastern holdings to Italy in the event of an annexation of the Balkans, as well as Italians assisting the Balkan League in the Balkan Wars, and Austria assisting the Ottomans. If you need a refresher of what I'm talking about, go back and listen to the last part I released right before this one. You'll get a little bit of a a refresher there. And weeks later, it declared war on the Central Powers, joining forces with France and Britain, who had assured Italy territorial possessions in the event of a victory, if it would join their side. And this was a huge blow to the Central Powers. The Italian military immediately rallied their armies and marched on the Italo-Austrian border, where the first clash between Italian and Austrian troops took place in the last week of May, 1915. It was the first of many. By the end of July, the Russian army was in full retreat. The Western Front had stagnated, and the British attack at Gallipoli looked bleak. But Serbia was still holding its own against the Austrian onslaught. Until October... In October of 1915, in a surprise move, Bulgaria suddenly joined the fight on the side of the Central Powers. Still bitter from its humiliating losses in the Second Balkan War, it was itching for a chance to kick some Serbian And in a deeply surprising and unrelenting attack on October 7th, 1915, Bulgarian, Austrian, and German troops joined forces and invaded Serbia on two fronts, one in the north and one in the east. Within days, soldiers from the three armies had entered the city limits of Belgrade and vicious street fighting ensued as Serbian soldiers and civilians desperately attempted to protect their city. The Serbians defended their capital heroically and inflicted a high amount of casualties on the Austrians, but in the end, they were overwhelmed by sheer force of numbers. As the Germans and the Russians before them, the Serbian army embarked on their own great retreat southward through the mountains, and into Albania and Greece, where they sought refuge. By mid-November, the entire country of Serbia had been occupied by Bulgaria and Austria-Hungary. The Serbian front was now expected to be quiet, and Austria-Hungary began moving more of its troops to the Italian and Russian fronts. As 1915 came to a close, things were not looking good for the Allies. By November, the British forces were evacuating the Dardanelles in Gallipoli. The Western Front was at a complete standstill. The Russian army was in a full retreat. The Italian army had seen barely minimal success in already five battles raging through the Alps, four of which had ended in failure, and the Serbian army had been resolutely defeated. The Allies rang in 1916 on a somber note and bunkered down for another long year of fighting. 1916 didn't begin with a much better outlook for the Allies. While January was relatively uneventful, the year would hold three of the most horrific battles of the war, and Germany began the first of three. these three in February. This was the attack on the city of Verdun. On a cold February morning, French troops were startled awake when over 800 German guns commenced a bombardment of the French line that stretched 19 miles from north to south, lasted 10 hours, and consisted of over 1 million shells falling on French lines before German shock troops stormed the French lines. The French took numerous casualties and were forced to fall back, only halting the German advance weeks later before the battle fell into a stalemate, where it would remain for months and be remembered as the battle of verdun on the italian front the italian army was thrown into battle after battle against austria hungary and the alps along the isonzo river in 1916 alone five battles were fought over this river with minimal gains on either side the italian army was feeling the frustration britain was feeling the heat on the home front spurred by the number of british troops serving on the mainland Irish separatists, long harboring a desire to secede from Britain, began an uprising in April of 1916 called the Easter Rising. The British were forced to divert some of their troops from the Western Front to quell the rebellion. The Allies needed a win, and they needed it bad. So as the calendar turned to June halfway through 1916 with the Allies bogged down on numerous fronts, the Russians made their move, championed by General Alexei Brusilov. Under his command, the Russian army launched one of the most lethal offensives, not just in World War I, but in history, now remembered as the Brusilov Offensive. Almost two million Russian troops attacked a front nearly as wide as the Ukraine and immediately broke through the Austro-Hungarian lines, devastating their infrastructure and sending shockwaves through the central powers immediately austria-hungary redirected troops from the italian front to the eastern front to stop the bleeding and germany halted its, its attacks at verdun to redirect troops to help but the russian army was moving far too quickly within two weeks they had reached the carpathian mountains dozens of miles past the initial austrian line an advance that had not been witnessed since the trenches were dug in september of 1914 it was the win the allies needed french British and Italian troops rallied on all fronts. The French counterattacked at Verdun, the British attacked in Iraq and pushed the Ottomans toward Baghdad, and the Italians launched yet another series of attacks on the Isonzo. Germany, Austria, Bulgaria, and the Ottoman Empire were taken aback. Soon after seeing the results of the Brusilov offensive and the expulsion of the Serbian army from their home country, Romania decided to jump into the fray on the side of the Allies, launching attacks against Bulgaria and Austria-Hungary. Romania had remained neutral until this point because their military situation was not ideal for war, and the Central Powers had been trying to keep them neutral through the course of the fight by offering concessions in the case of a Central Powers victory. They'd offered the same situation to Italy, but Italy had joined joined on the side of the Allied powers anyway. The entrance of Italy into the war made a victory by the Central Powers less likely than before, and Romania was encouraged by this. In August of 1916, Romania mobilized its forces and clashed with Austrian and Bulgarian troops. Despite initial success, Romania's army was poorly trained and its leaders were not nearly as battle-hardened as those behind the Bulgarian, Austrian, and German forces. Even though Russia sent a number of troops to support Romanian offensives into Bulgaria and Austria-Hungary, Bulgarian and Austrian troops overwhelmed Romanian bridgeheads and offensives quickly collapsed. By October, there were Bulgarian boots on the ground inside Romanian territory, and by December, Bucharest had been captured and the Romanian army was on the run. December of 1916 was a somber marker for the war. A conflict that was supposed to be over by Christmas of 1914 was now going on year three of bloodshed. But neither side was willing to back down. And then something kind of interesting happened. Germany called for peace. In an open letter to the world, Germany declared that they would accept a peace treaty if it meant all German pre war boundaries were honored and they were named the victor. Austria then sent a message to the United States declaring that they had no bone to pick with the Americans and they wished for the United States to remain out of the war that they believed would soon come to an end. For obvious reasons, Germany's peace proposal was rejected, and the United States responded to Austria in a deeply unfriendly way. The war would go on. 1917 began with the resumption of German unrestricted submarine warfare as a desperate attempt to keep Britain at bay, and in response, the United States formally severed all diplomatic ties to Germany. The destruction of the Lusitania in 1915 had heightened tensions so much that the resumption of such destructive tactics were seen as an act of aggression to American citizens who traversed the waters of the English Channel and the north coast of Europe. Woodrow Wilson, president of the United States at the time, began training and arming American merchant ships traveling to Europe to fight German U-boats. Though the United States was still technically neutral... These practices put that title to the test. The American military, only trained to handle mainly domestic conflicts, started gearing up to join the greatest conflict in human history. On the other side of the globe, let's take a quick look at some events that were heating up in Russia. First, let's revisit what we talked about in the last episode with the revolution of 1905 in Russia following the humiliating defeat in the Russo-Japanese War and the ongoing series of economic crises and corruption scandals. Turns out, even though some things changed following 1905 overall, life for most people in Russia did not improve very much. So, when Russia got into the Great War and began sending letters home to its wives, mothers, daughters, and their hu- that their husbands, sons, fathers, and brothers weren't going to be returning home from a conflict that was costing Russia far more than it was paying off, the people of Russia took offense to that. In February of 1917, tensions reached a boiling point as a series of strikes and protests broke out across Russia demanding change. These protests turned violent and became far more organized, and by the beginning of March, the Russian government was ordering troops in to quell the riots, though this resulted in the army revolting and refusing to attack the protesters, primarily because so many of the protesters were women. Days later, the monarchy was abolished, and Tsar Nicholas II was deposed by a new provisional Russian government, not quite communist, but definitely unfriendly to the monarchy. Tsar Nicholas II and his family were confined to the royal palace, and the new provisional government tried to change the fortunes of the war in Russia's favor. Unfortunately, the disarray the revolution had left the country in was felt as far away as the Eastern Front, and the army was already in dire straits. Back in the United States, Congress was still weighing their options concerning war. Though much of the United States populace supported the entrance into the conflict, there were prominent politicians who were against it, leaving Congress in a deadlock over what course of action to take. Then, at the end of February in 1917, the United States received a telegram from Britain that had been intercepted en route from Germany to Mexico. Germany was nervous about the United States joining the war effort against them and were attempting to launch a preemptive strike, by requesting Mexico's help in joining the war. Their argument? At the end of the war, upon their victory, Mexico would receive all of the territory the United States had taken from them in the Mexican-American War 70 years earlier. That's the equivalent of China promising North Korea the territory lost in the Korean War today. As we all know, Mexico never joined the war, but this telegram swayed the vast majority of fence-sitters in the United States toward war. By the end of the first week in April, the United States had declared war on Germany, and the first battalions of draftees began heading to Europe. The declaration of war from the United States on the German Empire caught the Central Powers flat-footed and made them scramble to counteract it. It reinvigorated the sullen allies in the Balkans, whose armies had fled from Montenegro and Serbia and been stationed in Italy and Greece. And they launched a daring counteroffensive against the Central Powers on the northern border of Greece, supported by a joint expeditionary force of French and Italian soldiers. And Greece, marred by a recently concluded governmental shift, decided to join in the fray and sent Greek troops to assist in the counteroffensive. Though the front would stay relatively static for the rest of 1917 without seeing much movement one way or the other, the relocation of precious resources put more pressure on the central powers. They called for help from their eastern allies, the Ottomans, but the Ottomans were dealing with a pretty disastrous situation of their own. Remember how the Ottoman Empire was exterminating minorities and discriminating against citizens who were not purebred Turks? Well, it turns out that's not something your citizenry usually wholeheartedly agrees to when it includes the majority of them. In 1916, a small group of Arab revolutionaries launched a revolt against the Ottoman Empire, and by mid-1917, it was actually gaining steam with the help of some British ambassadors, including T.E. Lawrence, better known as Lawrence of Arabia. The Brits were already still nursing a bruised ego from the defeat at Gallipoli and were more than happy to sponsor some discontent growing within the land of the one who humiliated them. That, and if the revolt was successful, it would mean the end of the Ottoman Empire, therefore leaving an opening for the British to step in as the new landlords of the territories left behind." So before you think that the British were helping the Arabs out of the goodness of their hearts, with the hope of inspiring the establishment of a series of self-governing Arab states who all have distinct cultures and independently-functioning societies, they weren't. So, in 1917, these tribes of Arabs are a real thorn in the side of the Ottoman Empire, who's still fending off attacks from Britain and Russia, the two largest empires in the world. These revolts themselves were not as successful as the Arabs may have hoped, but they definitely put more pressure on the Ottomans, which had an army close to the breaking point as it was. By the end of 1917, the Arab revolt had traveled from Mecca to Medina and captured the port city of Aqaba in modern day Jordan, and the British had captured Jerusalem while simultaneously launching an ambitious attack on the Western Front that nearly broke the German army in the Battle of Passchendaele. Things were finally going well for the British but the Italians were having a different story. After two years of senseless attacks along the Isonzo River, resulting in minimal gains and millions of casualties, the Italian leadership was breaking down, its citizenry disillusioned with the war. This led to a deeply-seated unrest within the country, and the government was in danger of collapsing entirely due to mass protests and labor strikes. So, in November 1917, when the Italian army suffered one of the worst defeats in military history, even up to the present day... It all came crashing down. After 11 battles fought in the Alps along the Isonzo River, the Italians were finally making some headway, and the Austrians asked for help from Germany to regain the territory they'd lost. Germany obliged and sent an army to assist the Austrians, and in October of 1917, they launched a surprise attack, beginning with a poison gas attack and, following ex- and a following extensive artillery barrage. Then, Austrian and German infantry attacked with explosive results, shattering the Italian lines and throwing the entire Italian army into disarray, leading to a full-scale, panicked, disorganized retreat as the Central Powers advanced and cut down anyone too slow to keep up with the main group. Almost 300,000 Italian soldiers were captured, and a further 13,000 were dead, along with 30,000 wounded. It was the greatest military defeat in Italian history, and when news reached the Italian people, the government crumbled under the pressure. Hundreds of thousands of Italian soldiers deserted. The fighting along the Isonzo River came to an abrupt and devastating end. The Italian government dissolved overnight. With a new, hastily put-together provisional government, Italy set about rebuilding itself from the catastrophe. Barely a week later, to the east, a radical political party launched a series of coordinated attacks in Russia with the sole intention of overthrowing the Russian imperial government and enacting a new communist government. Those loyal to this party were called Bolsheviks, and they were championing a new economic system called communism where the workers owned the means of production and all private ownership is abolished, among several other central tenets. The group had formed after the February Revolution we went over several minutes ago, and had, by now, formed their own military called the Red Army. And they used this army to quickly overwhelm the soldiers in service of the provisional government, toppling the fragile social structure and establishing establishing their own new system of ideals. Immediately after, they contacted Germany, the Ottoman Empire, and Austria-Hungary, seeking to withdraw from the war entirely. For obvious reasons, the Central Powers were more than willing to accept their terms, and on December 15th, the ceasefire was activated, and Russian troops retreated from the Eastern Front to the Home Front, where a whole new war was brewing. But we'll get to that in the next episode. Russia's exit from the conflict was disappointing to the Allied Powers, who had finally started to make some headway on the Western Front. With Russia now off the table, the Central Powers could move the resources that had been holding back the Russian tide to the east, in the east, to the Balkans and the Western Front, where they were desperately needed. Their forces bolstered, Germany and Austria-Hungary fortified their lines in France, Italy, and the Balkan states and prepared for their final dramatic push toward victory. 1918 began with another bitter winter in Europe, descending upon millions of troops huddled in trenches and dugouts carved into landscapes ravaged by four years of constant warfare. For the first few months, battle lines stayed relatively static as the Western Front stayed locked in a stalemate, and forces in the Balkans rallied the armies of Serbia, Montenegro, Greece, and France in preparation for their final push while Austria-Hungary held their own, as Germany pulled the bulk of its troops to France, intending to deliver a knockout blow. On the Eastern Front, the new Bolshevik government finally pulled the last of its troops out of Poland. All was quiet. While things were relatively uneventful in Europe, the Middle East was a different story. That whole Arab revolt we were talking about was gaining steam in January of 1918, and groups of Arab rebels many led by Lawrence of Arabia, began successfully attacking Ottoman positions in Arabia and Palestine. The Ottomans were forced to pull most of their remaining forces, aiding the Austrians and Bulgarians in the Balkans to put a stop to the insurrection, though the revolt was gaining momentum and had begun using guerrilla tactics instead of fighting in an open field, which presented a problem to the traditionally trained Ottoman military. Refer back to episode 1 of this series for a definition of guerrilla tactics. As the Ottoman Empire continued to collapse from the inside, all armies in Europe sat quietly in their trenches waiting for someone to make the first move. January turned to February, and still, it remained quiet. February turned to March, and word reached the ears of the Allied leaders that there was a massive movement of troops behind German lines on the Western Front, numbers of soldiers massing beyond anything seen up to this point in the war. Deserters from the German army who found their way over to the Allied front spread rumors that all leave in the German army had been cancelled, and all reserves had been called up. Panicked, the Allies scrambled to mass their own troops adjacent to this movement, but they were not able to move quickly enough, and on the morning of March 21st, 1918, Germany delivered their attempt at a knockout blow that would take France and Britain out of the war for good, ensuring the dominance of the German Empire over the whole of Europe. Before the sun began to rise, 10,000 big guns opened fire and German forces pounded British, American, and French lines with an artillery barrage more destructive than any barrage in history. More than 3,000 artillery shells fell on a concentrated weak spot in the Allied line every minute, and the barrage lasted over five hours. All in all, At least one million artillery shells pounded the Allies before it finally ceased. Then, as the American, French, and British troops began poking their heads out of their dugouts to see if it was really over, a massive war cry erupted from the German lines and 60 divisions of German troops, encouraged by the 500,000 recently pulled from the Eastern Front, charged across the decimated landscape. Ferocious fighting ensued, and in minutes the Allied lines were overwhelmed, and a profoundly disorganized retreat ensued as the Germans shattered defensive positions that had not changed in years. By the end of the first week of the offensive, the Germans had pushed over 30 miles into Allied territory, but suffered grievously for it. By the end of the two weeks of fighting, the German advance had slowed, and over 200,000 German troops were dead, wounded, or missing with similar numbers being registered by the Allies. Phase 2 of the attack commenced on April 7th, when a two-day barrage ensued as the Germans rallied their forces, and by April 9th, the German forces attacked again, crushing weakened and disorganized units of British, French, and Portuguese units, and pushing the Allies a further nine miles back from their front lines. Strained logistically and burdened with a high casualty rate, but with a profoundly invigorated morale, the Germans made the decision to continue advancing, capitalizing on the momentum already established. Mid-May, the Germans launched Phase 3 of the attack, this time focusing on the primarily French positions rather than those including British soldiers. Because of the information obtained after the capture of numerous German prisoners of war, the French were far more prepared for this attack than they had been for previous attacks, though the German advance was still a snowball rolling down a hill at this point. They could prepare for the impact, but it was still going to hurt. By the beginning of June, the Germans had advanced another nine miles past the initial battle lines. The Allies were scrambling. At the furthest extent, the Germans had advanced 50 miles into France, and the distance to Paris was less than what the Germans had already taken. Between mid-July, mid-June and mid-July, sporadic fighting continued, but the Germans attempted to correct their logistical issues while the Allies pulled from any reserves they could to reinforce their lines. And by now, troops from France, Britain, the United States, Greece, Portugal, Brazil, Siam, and Armenia had troops on the front, and the front lines were a chaotic mix of soldiers from all nationalities preparing to defend against the next German offensive. On the German side, having suffered almost half a million casualties, the German army was swiftly losing morale and manpower. Most of the assault troops they'd trained specifically for this offensive were either dead, wounded, or sick, and they were pulling from their dwindling reserves for every additional offensive. Desperate and knowing this was now their last chance at victory, they planned for one final attack, throwing everything they could at the Allied lines with Paris in their sights. On June 15th, the Germans launched their final assault, but this time, the Allies were ready. Bolstered by thousands of soldiers from all over the world, the Germans were met with a fierce and coordinated defense. On a battlefield ravaged by artillery barrages, constantly fired by both sides, riddled with machine gun fire, and littered with the bodies of the dead and dying, the Central Powers and the Allied Powers fought bitterly for one month while the fate of Europe hung in the balance. By mid-July, the German attack had stalled, played by numerous failed charges, failing supply lines, and ferocious Allied resistance. The Allies saw their chance and took it. Through the last four years of war, there had been numerous counterattacks that had resulted in more stalemates, but this time was different, because this time, there were two things the Allies had over the Germans. The Americans, and 350 shiny new tanks. Tanks were a novelty in the war, as they had very recently been invented, and no one had ever seen this many in one place. The Allies brandished their new iron sword and plunged it deep into the German lines with a destructive counterattack that began on July 18, 1918, immediately after the German advance stalled. In four days, the Germans were reeling. By this time, the Arab revolt in the Ottoman Empire had led to a disintegration of Ottoman control over their territory, and the Ottoman army had begun surrendering en masse to British and Arab forces in the region. Seeing the success of the Arabs, the British began to pull massive amounts of troops out of the region and relocate them to the Western Front. The tide was turning. Italian officials were deeply encouraged by the success. Having spent almost a year rebuilding their army, the Italians were finally ready to make a push. The Austro-Hungarian troops, under pressure from Germany, were preparing for an offensive, and Italian spies relayed crucial information back to headquarters, leading to an Italian artillery barrage falling on heavily concentrated Austrian positions. Casualties quickly mounted to the tens of thousands, and the Italians seized the initiative, launching an enormous counterattack. In ten days... They shattered the weakened Austrian lines and pushed the Austrians back further than at any point in the war. It is at this point that the Austro-Hungarian Empire begins to crumble from within. On October 28th, four days after the start of the Italian offensive, a group of ethnic Czechs declared the independence of Bohemia from Austria-Hungary. On the 29th, a group of South Slavs declared the independence of a nation that would become Yugoslavia in the Balkans. On the 31st, the Kingdom of Hungary formally announced its exit from the Union of Austria and Hungary, and with this news, hundreds of thousands of Austrians surrender to the Italians. The Austro-Hungarian Empire had officially dissolved. In the Balkans, the Balkan League made up of Serbian, Greek, and Montenegrin armies received word of the success of the initial counterattacks against the Germans on the Western Front and Austrians in Italy and rallied for their own offensive. Encouraged by the assistance of numerous French, British, and Italian troops, the Balkan nations launched offensives against Austria and Bulgaria, both of which had been weakened by years of attempting to maintain territory that was just not rightfully theirs, and both disintegrating from within. Since the beginning of June, they had been making swift gains in the Balkans, but after the dissolution of Austria-Hungary, the central powers started taking defeat after defeat from the Balkan allies. By mid-September, Bulgarian troops were beginning to abandon positions without a fight and surrendering en masse. Bulgaria ordered a general retreat back to pre-war borders, despite German protestation, and the Balkan allies continued their advance. Greek- serbian and montenegrin troops continued their advance into serbia and montenegro liberating both countries as they went and continuing onward into bulgaria at this point bulgarian troops began pleading with their high command to surrender instead of lose more territory and when high command refused bulgarian units began to mutiny banding together and marching on sofia the bulgarian capital Eventually, they would overthrow the Bulgarian monarchy and send Tsar Ferdinand I into exile, proclaiming Bulgaria a republic. Signing an armistice with the Balkan allies on September 30th, Bulgaria had been defeated. The Germans were furious. Things weren't going much better in the Ottoman Empire. Encouraged by British assistance, the Arab revolt was in full swing and was now seizing important Ottoman cities including Damascus and Aleppo in Syria. At the end of September, a British, Jewish, and Arab force attacked an Ottoman army near Tel Megiddo, an ancient biblical city, and the Ottoman Ottoman army was virtually annihilated. The Ottomans sued for peace, and an armistice was signed October 30th. The Ottomans, now removed from their conflict, could focus on attempting to pick up the pieces of their shattered empire, pieces that they would never put back together again. With the Ottomans, Bulgarians, and the majority of Austria-Hungary now out of the war, Allied troops flooded into the Western Front, prepared to knock Germany out for good. Through October, German troops retreated further and further into territory that they had held since 1914 until they were almost fully expelled from France and Belgium altogether. Casualties rose into the millions since the beginning of the Spring Offensive in March, and the German people began to protest the war. Starving and destitute, Germany was the last man standing against the Allied powers, and they now knew that the war was lost. Every attempted counterattack was met with disaster, and every defense was quashed. The final defense was at a line built in 1916 and 1917, thought to be impregnable, called the Hindenburg Line. But when the Allies reached it, they left it all but completely destroyed. Erich von Ludendorff, the high commander of the German army, immediately resigned, as did the rest of the German high command. The German people revolted, demanding an end of the war and the abdication of Kaiser Wilhelm II. The crews of the German high seas fleet mutinied. Austria formally surrendered. Knowing the war was lost, on November 10th, Kaiser Wilhelm abdicated the German throne and fled to Holland. The German Republic was established. The next day, on November 11th, 1918, the articles of an armistice were signed between the new German high command and the Allies at a railway station in northern France. At 11am, fighting ceased. In four years, the war had carved a path of destruction and death through Europe, leaving around 40 million military and civilian personnel dead. Many nations lost more than 5% of their pre-war population to the conflict, the worst of which was Serbia, who lost potentially upward of 25% of its pre-war population to the destruction. In the next episode, we will discuss what came of the war and what legacy it left behind. But for today, we'll leave it at this. World War I, also known as the Great War, Lasting between 1914 and 1918, was largely touted as the war to end all wars. Unfortunately, history would find this statement to be profoundly untrue. That is it for World War One, folks. We did it. We made it. We got through World War One. That's been stressing me out for a long time, and I'm glad we did it. Again, if you enjoy the podcast, please head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Drop me a five-star review and a reminder that the podcast is listener-supported, so feel free to donate financially to the podcast. It would be deeply, profoundly appreciated. Thank you so much again for listening. I will catch you next time as we cover the fallout of the Treaty of Versailles, the mess that was the 1920s and 1930s internationally, and everything leading up to the Second World War. I'm thinking I'm going to be breaking up the Second World War into four different parts because this this episode was just so daunting to take on. So we're going to try to split it up a little bit, keep the, keep the energy moving. So... Without further ado, I'm going to let you go enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you for listening, and I will catch you next time on Tanner Talks about stuff that happened. Bye-bye.